Fantastic Saturday morning. Yeah, and Hassan. Wonder where Hassan is. I don't know. He's probably sleeping or something. So every... Oh, no, I don't think he's in the... Yeah, he's not in the Discord anymore. But if you are in a Discord with Hassan, just at Hassan about 500 times for me. So I have no I have no idea where he is. We talked last night and he was like, yeah, this morning. I'll see you then. So we're waiting for Hassan to get here. Typical Hassan, late and all. But... I got about an hour and a half, so I can uh, just take questions. I don't know. Has has there any has there been anything that is like that has importantly went on? Best variety of beer. Okay, that's a good question. It's the best question. I'm a Guinness fan. Although the Guinness did have that cringe commercial of you saw it with like the the grandfather wearing makeup. Like I don't, <coughs> I don't get what their mark. Oh, a book decided to fall. I don't get what their marketing tactics are. This doesn't. It doesn't make sense to me, you, because you have a certain field of buyers. Uh, I did some marketing work back in the day. You have a certain audience. And you tailor uh, the presentation of your product to your audience. That's how you sell stuff. So tailoring, you, you have this beer company, and there's a certain type of person which drinks like Bud Light or drinks Guinness. And they're very easy to tailor to. It's actually not that difficult to tailor to them. Like, honestly, if, if you put like... <laughs> The, the like exact opposite, like some like homophobic commercial out there. Honestly, more people would probably buy Bud Light. It's like very easy to know what to do in order to how to present yourself to attract that subset of um, of consumers. So I don't I don't get why they do the all the like the gay stuff. I, don't, I really don't get why they do it. Hassan must be late due to watching the coronation. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to think about the coronation, guys. Well, on the one hand, it's it's cool. It's really cool because it's a coronation. And the ancient rites of the English. And I'm ordinariat, so I should like that. I think uh, the ordinariat um, of Our Lady of Walsingham, I think they had, they, they were actually dispensed 
from their Friday um, fast uh, for its celebration of the coronation. So I should like it, but I, I just, I just, you know, I, I don't know what to think about it just because of uh, how the British crown has related to the, to the Catholics in England. So, you know, one part of me doesn't want to care. The other part of me wants to care. What can I say? Hassan is in London right now, infiltrating as the 22-year-old Muslim mayor. It, wait, the mayor of London's like a 20-year-old Muslim dude? Mayor of London. Let's look this up. Saik Khan. Saik Khan. His salary is 150,000 pounds. Um, Saik Khan. How old is he? Dang, Saik Khan beat some dude named Sean Bailey. He sounds more like a... And then there's also Sayin Barry. And then there's Luisa Porit. Dang, do they have, do they have like actual like Brits running? <laughs> oh, there's an animal welfare party. Really? Women's equality party? <laughs> There's a burning pink party. What in the world? What do, what do you guys? Did I forgot the English have all of these parties? Why why do they just have these nutty, these very nutty uh, party names? Is that like an English thing? Oh, I kind of wanna kind of wanna look more into this. It's fascinating. Ah, Saiki Kassan, who said terrorism is part and parcel of living in a big city. <laughs> Oh man, that is that is so tragic. That's because they aren't actually trying to sell more beer. It's literally the Stone Toss comic. I don't know what the thoughts on the Stone Toss comics. What's a Stone Toss comic? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't get it, man. I don't know. A Hindu prime minister read some of the Bible readings. What? For the coronation? Yeah, I knew. So I kind of knew because I kind of know how the Church of England is. I knew something like that would happen. I definitely knew something like, like they, they would just be cringe on that level. We already knew that was going to happen. So that that was a given. I'm just talking about like even if it was like based in trad, like super like if, if they did like the whole coronation, like how how Henry would have wanted done would would have wanted it done, like everything in Latin and and such. Like I, I still don't know how I would feel about that theoretically, you know. Just feels uncomfortable. It's like, yeah, we just we just uh, celebrated the other day the um, the Carmelite. Are they Carthusian? Are they Carthusian or are they Carmelite martyrs? Yeah, the Carthusian martyrs of London, who were all killed um, 
what year was this? In, uh, I guess this is just generally in the in the 16th century. So, like, what what are we what are we supposed to think about think about that as an institution? You know, because they can cry about like all of their Huguenot stuff all day, and yeah, that was that was the uh, the French carrying out all that stuff, but. Like they, they, uh, they're built on, on the blood of monastics, you know, like, can, can, can we just kind of gloss over that and then celebrate it just for the sake of it being like a cool part of Western civilization? I, I, I don't know. Maybe I don't have the answer to that question. Too bad Hassan's not here. Hassan would probably be able to answer it. But Hassan has has that uh, that Middle Eastern stuff to him too. So who knows what he would think about it? But yeah, it's sure it's cool, and I mean it gets people to. Uh, but it it also rings so hollow and it's so empty. It's so empty because you read all of the responses of of uh, of His Majesty Charles. And he's he's swearing to uphold the the Christian religion, um, to be a defender of the faith. But I mean, they don't care. I mean, I, I don't think for a minute that uh, Charles cares about Christianity anything further than just like a cultural uh, phenomenon. Like he does, he doesn't really care. So, like, why, why the, why the sort of pageantry? Uh, it, fe it feels, in a certain way, like conservatives are kind of looking at things like this and, and pretending like uh, we've kept the flame of tradition alive when, when really it's just all pageantry. It's, it's all, it, it's actually uh, slightly offensive because I mean, you get all of the, you get all of the trappings of tradition. They steal that away from us. And then they make it gay. They have a Hindu read the Bible readings. They're swearing to uphold a religion they don't believe in, that we hold dear. That that isn't traditional. That that is that that's really offensive, actually. Because they think that our our tradition, which is owned by us as Catholics, they think it's a it's it's some sort of place for pageantry. For prettiness, something, uh, some some once in a lifetime event of, of, of a coronation of of His Majesty Charles the Third. He's a degenerate. He doesn't care about the faith. Yeah, may, maybe maybe it's just I'm not British, so I don't get it. But I've I've never been under under a monarch and had a monarch to look up to, and I get the value certainly, and obviously I'm I'm. I believe in the monarchy as a um, as a form of government, but the monarchs we have now they just don't care. Um, yeah, so so may, maybe maybe it's like a little bit, I don't know. May, maybe I'm being a little bit pessimistic, and actually I should just stop thinking about it so deeply and just sit back and enjoy the pageantry. But it it really just is hollow. Um, and, and to a certain degree, it's uh, it's offensive that they think that 
they can just keep all of the trappings and um, it, it's it's kind of like so to, to give a to give an analogy it's like when you're it's like when uh, in- English people understand this a lot more than Americans but it's it's like when you watch one of those very um, high Anglo-Catholic masses, just absolutely beautiful. Everybody is dressed in Tridentine vestments. Maybe a bunch of Latin is getting thrown in there. And then you then you look and you have you have like a female priest up there. Or the sermon is all about like gay stuff. It's like you're 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 taking all of you're taking all of the externals, which externals to a degree uh, certainly matter, but uh, they matter a lot less. So you're, you're taking all of the externals, that, that which matters less, and then you're completely stripping it of any of its uh, meaning. You're stripping it of any of its meaning, and then you're putting it before us for our enjoyment. Like, I, I don't get the point of doing a coronation with somebody who doesn't have the faith. What what are you swearing to uphold? Why are you doing it? Why are we watching it? I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense to me. Maybe, maybe somebody in the comments is like trying to like kill me right now. And the, one of you Brits in the comments are really upset. But it to me, the coronation is about as significant as a female Anglo-Catholic priest celebrating Mass. You've kept all of the externals, but none of the substance is there. So to me, it's almost uh, just completely a non-thing. But I feel like I should care about it, you know? Okay. Yeah, to, to be fair, the King Ant did once say some things about tradition once. Good video, actually. Yeah, I saw I saw that video um, from His Majesty. I saw that video. And I think he has, in his view of um, tradition and traditionalism, the same issues that uh, a, a really there, there's sort of explain kind of the uh, intellectual context of such comments. For, I want to say, about two to three centuries at this point, there has been certain philosophical movements who have denied, um, really denied the faith, yet they saw the faith as something which was traditional and useful and an important part of Western uh, civilization, broadly speaking. So they will speak very highly of tradition, they'll speak very highly of, of the faith, but they don't believe it. So, as as of as I was saying before, there he, he's keeping the trappings. Sure, he's he's keeping the externals, he's keeping the the respectability for it, but he doesn't have the faith. So I, I don't I don't really get why it matters. But yeah, I mean, it, it's better than nothing. I, I guess it's. It's certainly more positive than you would probably get from anybody else in the royal family, but still, it's. Uh, I, I don't. I don't think we 
we we celebrate celebrate things uh like this i mean maybe i'm just yeah yeah about yeah about how he loves islam and yeah yeah um sure yeah i i thought he was a perennialist uh is in vitro uh, ivf okay for animal breeding i have no clue yeah, yeah, yeah. So this this is the huge issue I have. It's a blatant lie to swear to these principles, but to deny them all the same. Yeah, because we look. Um, I'm trying. I'm trying to look at the coronation oath. I'm just trying to pull it up for reference. Um. Ah, oh, great! It's all of these. Uh, all of these stupid articles for trying to explain all these things to normies that's not what i want i think i saw somebody tweet this on tweet part of the coronation oath okay um no i don't see it i thought i saw it i thought he shared it nah let me yeah i'm not gonna search for it too long that'd be kind of cringe for me to do Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, the question. Uh, will you maintain the Protestant Reformed religion established by law? Will you maintain the Protestant Reformed religion established by law? And he answered, yes, as part of the coronation oath. Will he actually be doing that? No. Does he actually believe that? No. It's pageantry. None of the substance is there. So it, it, it really is just a blatant lie. I mean, that that would be like, uh, let's say, Joe Biden, uh, to, to try to, like, put it in the minds of, of Catholics. Because, I mean, you guys don't really care whether he upholds the Protestant Reformed religion or not. It, it, it's really nothing to you guys. But if, like, Joe Biden um, had to take some sort of oath from the Pope, that's really the, you have the Archbishop of Canterbury there. You have all of the, the bishops of the Church of England there. You have the Pope come up to Joe Biden and say, Joe Biden, will you, uh, in, in his like inauguration as president, will you uphold the, the Catholic faith um, by the temporal sword submitted to the, the spiritual sword um, which the church has? And then Joe Biden says, yes, I will, uh, I will uphold it. And then he like supports abortion. It's 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 like we all know that it's a lie. We're all just watching it because it's I don't know it's pretty. I mean I guess that's not the worst reason to watch it, but it just rings hollow, rings hollow for sure. Yeah, it's a very very pagan understanding of tradition for sure. Where's the son? I don't know. I'm gonna actually check my DMs again. Yeesh! I sent it to him over an hour ago. This man, he must be sleeping. Hassan must be sleeping. Okay, so uh, the king has no influence or power in the UK. The monarchy lost all that power in the 1800s. The House of Lords and the House of Commons is power. Not the king. He just has to say that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I get how the how it works. I mean, there, there is, there is that like one veto power that they still have that Elizabeth completely like flopped on when it came to allowing abortion in the UK. Like, I, I honestly cannot understand how Elizabeth didn't just take the L and get 
thrown off of the throne rather than put the stamp of approval on uh, abortion laws in the UK. Yeah, and then there's this question. Is it worth uh, the British having a monarchy if it's only going to be treated as a primarily ceremonial matter anyways? I, I still see the value um, to having a monarchy, uh, even if they don't have, like, real power. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, don't, I just don't like the, the, the parts of it where it's like they're clearly saying stuff that just isn't true. I, that, that's the part I'm complaining about. I'm, I'm totally for a monarchy that's even... Um, completely ceremonial because monarchs uh you, you you have the people uh they need somebody to look up to they need somebody to look up to that is going to express for them uh what it means to be um british or what it means to be american to 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 show forth uh the certain values of a people and monarchs are great for this they're absolutely great because what we get in America is we get some sort of like hole or where we, we really have a, a hole of demagoguery where, where you get people looking up to, to uh, certain political figures, but more often people looking up to certain social figures. Uh, the, the, the people need a monarch to look up to. They, they need somebody to, to look up to. And now we, I mean, look at the type of people that uh, or the ordinary American looks up to. Um, complete degeneracy and there isn't uh, there, there isn't any sort of connection uh, of this uh, person you look up to that that sort of represents the the older uh, sort of older, older sort of line uh, so yeah I'm, I'm totally fine for for a ceremonial monarchy um, even if they have no real power I, I think that's a net positive to keep I, I was just complaining about how how empty and hollow a lot of the things that are said uh, okay, here we go. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, America is basically a constitutional monarchy without the original ceremonies. I actually, I actually think this is this is quite true. I think this is quite true. Um, but I think I think it. I, while I think America is a constitutional monarchy without the original ceremonies, I think it was a very crappily done constitutional monarchy. So yeah, um, I absolutely agree. Actually. Okay, so here, uh, did Constantine help compile the Bible in the fourth century? Uh, no, uh, he didn't. So the process of the, well, okay, what what Constantine uh, did do, um, and, and I to, to state this clearly, is Constantine. Uh, you can read this in the Life of Constantine by Eusebius. Um, what Constantine did do is he ordered uh, Eusebius, who was a important bishop at the time and ecclesiastical historian, to uh, get some Bibles put together, like to get some Bibles and manuscript. Because back then it was very expensive, very difficult uh, to have books. So he said, make all of these Bibles, so what Bibles for these certain important churches to have, or for the the institution of new churches or whatever it may be. So that that's what Constantine did do. But when it comes to the process of biblical uh, canonization, you really have from a very early time, um, late first century, early second century, you have this recognition 
of, and I'm just talking about New Testament canonization. Old Testament, the Old Testament canon is just a just a whole nother question, a whole nother can of worms to open. But late first, early second century, you get the uh, the four gospels, um, or at least some of the gospels uh, in most of the places. Uh, you you get uh, during the by the time of Irenaeus, it's like there were the four gospels were very solidly done, and that was mid to late second century. But late to early, late first century, early second century, you do have this uh, four gospels in many places, um, or at least some of the gospels. Uh, that wasn't too um, controversial. And then you also had a significant number of the epistles of Paul. Those were really bread and butter, bread and butter, although Hebrews was, was strongly disputed. And then certain local places would have other of the uh, Catholic epistles. And then what you get over time, what happens over the next, I want to say two centuries, because by the, by the fourth century, the canon, the New Testament canon is getting a lot more settled. And it really isn't until like the seventh, eighth, ninth century that you get uh, some of those more controversial books like um, James, uh, Hebrews, Revelation, second and third John, uh, second Peter, I want to say also. Uh, some of these a bit more controversial uh, epistles are um, finally like everybody uh, agrees. But yeah, the the general substance of the New Testament canon is there. Early second century epistles of Paul, Gospels, um, and then certainly by fourth century, a lot of people agree. A little bit of controversy by seventh and eighth century of complete. Uh, unanimity when it comes to New Testament canon. And then, uh, the, I mean, throughout the medieval era, you get some, you still get some, like, some individuals in certain areas questioning some, uh, but by the, by the, uh, the Tridentine decree, that was really like the, the nail in the coffin. But yeah, I'm, I am just, just keeping the, uh, keeping this to the New Testament canon not the old testament canon because the old testament canon that that's a lot more uh, controversial yeah i think i think the uh the huge the huge issue with the um the american constitutional monarchy if you want to state it like that dang where is hassan i'm about to beat him up i'm gonna beat him up later about the uh, American constitutional monarchy is the the flocks because one of the reasons for uh, a monarchy and this is coming from uh, Summon Contra Gentiles and uh, De Regno, which is uh, St. Thomas's uh, two places where he really talks about the monarchy in, in uh, a good amount of detail. But one of the reasons is the stability that you have um, of universal agreement because uh, universal agreement or uh, among a people is actually a good thing uh, we usually think of like oh no everybody agrees like that's that's fascism and stuff no actually uh, everybody agreeing is a very good thing it's a very very good thing everybody should agree and everybody should think the same uh, that's how things should go so one of the really good uh 
things about sorry this is like kind of covering my whole face one of the really good things about the monarchy and one of the reasons why we do the monarchy why we support the monarchy is because it provides a sort of single source of stability when it comes to the beliefs and actions of the people we're with the american setup especially with the sort of demagoguery of uh, presidential elections you have a sh you almost certainly and at all times have a sharp divide among the people in constant fighting uh, nobody knows who to who to sort of listen to or obey nobody knows what to believe um, and, it, and it really kind of creates an entire culture of sophistry so yeah the the american constitutional monarchy if we had like life terms i think it'd be a lot different it'd be a lot lot different if we had something like life terms or something longer like i don't know 10 years rather than every four years or uh maybe i think the best option is just having the uh the senate and house of representatives uh elect somebody for uh the presidency i think that'd be a lot better kind of like how uh we have the cardinals elect the pope except we're the ones who uh, actually we're the ones who elect house of representatives we're the ones who elect uh the state state senate and such state senate chooses senator and then senate and house of representatives chooses uh president that that'd be just the ideal model it would cut down on the the demagoguery a lot. We would get people who actually um, are semi. Maybe maybe do like a whole like confirmatory vote thing just to keep the people happy. But yeah, the, the current way of of having the, the constitutional monarchy of America set up is pretty bad. Some French dude complained to John Adams that the U.S. president had more power than the kings in Europe. Adams replied, I know, isn't it great? I, I actually, oh, man. Wait, wait, it's really frustrating. I've been a defender of, of uh, monarchy for a while. Maybe eventually I'll do like a uh, a fun little uh, commentary series on De Regno. Or maybe like do an episode on all of the places where St. Thomas argues for the monarchy. But a lot of like boomer cons, you, you talk to them and you're like, yeah, monarchy, this is the reason, like it's so great. Um, like relationship between the spiritual and temporal swords, also great. Like we can, we can, we can do this. Like a, a lot of what they're desiring, and I feel like I talk to them and like a lot of what they're desiring uh, when it comes to the relationship between church and state is like exactly the, unironically the Catholic view. Uh, they they just don't really know how to state it. When they stated it, it's uh, it's super cringe. Um, but besides that, what you get in the in the boomer con sort of view of history, and it's like you you can explain to these people all day that they they're they're just not well informed when it comes to their their history of how things work. You can explain to them all day that the U.S. president now, heck, your average U.S. senator. <laughs> has more power than like a medieval king would have had like medieval medieval kings that that was a dangerous job guys it, it it wasn't it wasn't like your absolute sort of uh ruler type job no it's was, it was a very dangerous job because we had this un uh, this understanding of of levels of um levels of authority uh in order to protect uh the people 
so the king could just couldn't do whatever he wanted and with immunity like no they get him out of there if, it, if he did something like that uh so yeah you, you you try to explain this uh to them that actually no the u.s president has more authority than most kings in europe <laughs> and n- nope they 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 just don't believe they're like well that's not what i learned back in like 1982 middle school europe uh history class it's like well maybe your uh 1982 history class wasn't the best history class in the world and here's why here's why it's wrong the other hassan true Okay, so good question. So how do we understand uh, St. Understand Alphonsus Liguori's book, The Glories of Mary? Some of the prayers seem very weird or scary to say, and like idolatry, how do I deal with the stuff like this? It makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, I'm assuming, I'm assuming you're a convert. Um, obviously, I'm a convert as well. And yes. Uh, yes, exactly. Uh, a lot of a lot of the uh, Marian tradition of the Catholic Church. <laughs> Sorry, I'm still getting over my sickness. But a lot of the Marian tradition of uh, Marian devotion of the Catholic Church, at least uh, in some different uh, traditions, can be very uncomfortable it can be very very uncomfortable for a lot of us but we have to recognize is that when we're assessing these things for idolatry first uh he there's there's nothing uh which is in there if it is something that was uh printed given the stamp of approval that you will pray which will uh, cause you to sin uh, if you're praying with the intent of the words. Just because of uh, St. Alphonsus Liguori's status as the doctor of the church and the church's approbation of, um, of the prayers in there, it's, it's approved as safe. So you can safely um, go ahead and pray them. But what you have to recognize uh, when objectively assessing these things is that you have to uh, objectively assess these things. So, uh, for example, um, if a certain writer calls Mary omnipotent, says, oh, omnipotent uh, lady or or something like that, we have to recognize that this omnipotence is something uh, that is won by her prayers. It's something that not speaking about the proper attribute of omnipotence, even the humanity of Christ doesn't have the proper attribute of uh, omnipotence. Rather, it's using uh, extremely exalted language that's that's very uh, flowery, uh, if you want to put it like that. It's very uncomfortable. You can feel very uncomfortable, especially when you don't come for that tradition. And you're not bound. You're certainly not bound. I've, uh, I, I, don't, I don't like the book. Uh, I, I, it, it's not something that, um, that is like, 
I mean, I, I like the Dominican tradition. The Dominican tradition has a very strong uh, Mariology and a very strong Marian devotion. So, of course, like I'm not like undevoted to Mary or anything like that. I just I just don't find um, a lot of the ways of stating ways of stating Our Lady's per, uh, prerogatives to be helpful. That's completely fine. I mean, nobody's putting a gun to your head and forcing you to do that. But you just have to recognize, um, objectively speaking, uh, formally speaking, that it isn't an error when uh, when they say things like that. Because the intent of the author isn't to like, isn't to say that Mary somehow has the the proper attribute of omnipotence um, or anything like that. So yeah, um, that that's kind of that's kind of my thoughts. And and there is something to say, something to be said about uh, certain. Yeah, there is something to say about language which you probably shouldn't use. It's it's just not helpful. Um, I, I understand why you say it. It's just not helpful. And there's there's just nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's, it's not like the the church has ever held a gun to my my head and said that I must uh, at all times and in all places uh, pray the glories of Mary uh, according to St. Alphonsus Liguori. That just, that just isn't a thing. Okay, so this is a good question. Um, man, Hassan's not here with all of these. Hassan has a very good, very good comments to make about uh, Alphonsus Liguori's glories of Mary. Uh, that, that really helped my own way of thinking through it. But does the state of addiction lower responsibility to sin? For instance, if, if someone uh, is an alcoholic, is his sin of being drunk less grave than one of a healthy person? It's <laughs> a good question. So there, there's a few things that can be said about this. Uh, when it comes to sins that one engage in uh, while intoxicated, if uh, you get intoxicated and you will your intoxication in view that, like, let's say you know you're a violent drunk and you get drunk anyways and you beat somebody up, you're completely culpable for beating that person up. Now, let's say... You don't really, um, you don't really know that you're violent when you're drunk, but you still will getting drunk, and then you beat somebody up. You're culpable, but you're less culpable. Now, the third instance, you happen to like, I don't know. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure everybody when they when they start drinking have had occasions like this where you don't really know. You try something new. You don't really know how it affects you, and then you accidentally uh get too intoxicated and then you go and beat somebody up in that third case you're actually just not culpable you're not culpable at all so uh when it comes to state of addiction though the state of addiction um it does lower culpability so if that uh yeah yeah it does lower culpability Wait, Ruckman? Wait, wait, Denlinger? Okay, so Ruckman taught Denlinger? It's crazy. Okay, what is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Well, it's final impenitence. But I can pull up something from St. Thomas that's good on this. Uh, if I can find it. 
Well, I think I'll probably be able to find it. Uh, oh man, there's a lot of articles on this. I was just going to read through the article and then I realized there's a lot of articles on this. Um, yeah, it's final impenitence. If, if I have, if I have time, actually I might, maybe I'll do like a separate video on it sometime this week. That'd be fun. Oh, you're going to do, oh, you're going to make a uh, compilation of, of like KJV guys. Yes. Um, I guess it's kind of awkward. Why weren't things like the Synod of Rome of 382 brought up during the discussions about the canon during the Reformation? Were they lost? And if so, when were they rediscovered? I don't know how to put this to you. Um, I feel, I feel like a lot of people are going to get like the, the Catholic answer shock when I say this. While it is true that the Synod of Rome intrinsically has authority and had authority to, um, to promulgate the canon, we can, we can agree with that. So in that sense, they're right by pointing to things like the Synod of Rome. But when anybody discussed the canon after 382, nobody really uh, cared about the Synod of Rome because they didn't really know about it. Um, because just because the, the Pope has declared something uh, to be an error, to be true doesn't mean the entire world gets word. And this was a, a synod in Rome, more or less uh, obscure. And nobody really uh, knew or cared about what they had to say. So, yeah, the, the whole thing where it's like, yeah, the, the canon, at least the way in which some of the uh, Catholic answers folks can make it seem, others are a bit more particular with their words. They can make it seem like, oh, yeah, synod of Rome in 382, uh, they... Did the whole canon thing and everybody was like, okay, this is the canon. And then Martin Luther came around and he was a big dumb butt and he took out books of the canon. That's not really what happened. Uh, 382 happened. Not many people really cared or knew about it. Um, and then people kept debating it for the next thousand years, a little over a thousand years until Florence came around and people still kind of debated it for another hundred years. And then Trent finally, uh, put the kind of destroyed it but yeah there's 382 wasn't really um like definitive for anybody um it's kind of just like in magisteriology looking at when the church technically promulgated the canon that that's really all that's important when everybody when it was widely recognized that the church had promulgated the canon that was at either florence or trent so yeah so sorry if that like kind of burst your uh burst your bubble right there or something i didn't mean to to red pill you too hard okay here's here's a here's a good question where do classical protestants err in their criticism of the catholic notion of tradition yeah um when it comes to the way in which they okay so i feel like if you're talking about modern catholic protestants I mean classical protestants which i'm gonna assume you are um, the way in which those guys, uh, will view tradition for us is they'll say like, look, this church father disagreed with that church father or this like point of, uh, like the Gavin Ortland, like, Oh, the quarter decimal controversy. 
Um, and, and it's and it's a bit it's a bit silly because tradition doesn't equal what old people happen to say. Like that that's not what what tradition is. It's not at all what um, tradition is. We could speak of uh, tradition in multiple senses. And this is, uh, it, dare I be uh, accused of the Michael Lofton nuancing, I won't go into uh, objective versus subjective, constitutive tradition, like all, all of all of the various different. But what you need to know is that all tradition is, is the passing down uh, of the faith within generations uh, through the authentic instruments of tradition, which are the bishops uh, in union with the Roman pontiff. That, that's all we mean by tradition. Um, if, if you want to look at tradition in the sense of like, what is uh divino apostolic tradition, like what is divinely revealed to the apostles and passed down, um, from them, uh, that, that we look at, we're called the monuments of tradition, which is the, um, we can look at like the early preaching of the church and, and such. But what, what I'm, what I'm saying is, what I'm basically saying is they kind of think that tradition I, I don't know exactly how to express how they think we think of tradition it's really weird they think like i don't know what what like old people said like that that's by old people i mean like second third century fathers uh happen to say where it's like no that's that's not that's not tradition like i don't i don't really care what tertullian or origin said about this or that like neither of them were like even <laughs> neither of them were even uh uh, instruments of uh, themselves figures which passed down uh, tradition because they weren't bishops um, which makes one an authentic uh, preacher of tradition so I, I just I just feel like um, well, what all, all I'm trying to express I guess is to say like we we get to this debate about tradition and the fallibility of tradition and one side is using tradition in a completely different sense than the other side because really, um, really, I, I don't think there would be much problem uh, when when we're speaking of like an infallible rule of tradition. Uh, for, well, tradition has an infallible rule. I, I don't think there would be uh, much problem um, if it was if it was defined properly. Because it's like, did the bishops? as a certain moral body passed down uh, without the ability uh, to err uh, the faith. And if you believe the indefectibility of the church, you kind of, kind of have to say yes. And if you deny the indefectibility of the church, then you're kind of in some, some hot water. So uh, yeah, I, I guess there's my, my rambling answer, which probably wasn't uh, too good. Okay, so uh, what is your opinion on the value of Thomas's commentary in the sentences? I seem to have picked up the impression from somewhere that the Summa is better somehow after reading. I think my impression is wrong. Yeah, I love his commentary on the sentences. I've actually been uh, doing a read-through from, from cover to cover of his commentary on the sentences. It's fantastic. Ah. Oh. I'm actually like extremely annoyed by this. He lives a short trip from the parish where Woodbury hosted the Aquinas Academy.
Oh, wait, Kyle is here? Hi, Kyle. Hope you're doing fine. You're anti-clown mass. I'm glad. I'm anti-clown mass as well. Okay, everybody's talking about Denlinger. I'm looking for a... Um, how how uh, does baptism of desire reconcile with the decrees of the Council of Trent? I, I don't get how it doesn't. It's like we 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 have like the the Summa commentaries from some of the guys who were at the Council of Trent and went back to like Salamanca or wherever, and they wrote commentaries or they had written commentaries on Tertia Pars, and we can look where they were commenting on the articles where St. Thomas was talking about baptism of desire. I, I don't get, I don't get why this is such like a diamondite, uh, like hard thing for people to understand is baptism. Uh, and this is continuous teaching of the church. Baptism, uh, valid baptism by water is that which constitutes one as a member of the body of the church. Yeah. But somebody who is um, who is a member of church in voto, that is um, in will, in, in desire, uh, isn't isn't a member of the body of the church uh, formally and outwardly speaking. But uh, according to desire, if they were to die um, from martyrdom or die before, or if they have some sort of, um, if we can even speak of the notion of implicit desire, uh, which is a little bit more controversial, and. Uh, that, according to Saint Thomas, um, takes the place of baptism in that they have the uh, that they have the theological virtues, which has its root in sanctifying grace, which is the effect of baptism. Which is why, analogously, we call it baptism of desire. I, I don't. I, I just don't get why that's like a sticking point for people because it just seems pretty consistent teaching of the church. I think what really <clears throat> gets people messed up is when the church talks about. Uh, baptism, water baptism, a valid water baptism is that which uh, alone constitutes someone a member of the church, which is true. And you get in the same books, like uh, I was reading the SDS on this the other day, you get in the same books where people are talking about, yes, water baptism valid alone is that which constitutes somebody um, a member of the body of the church. And you get them like later in their book talking about baptism of desire as constituting somebody a member in voto, in, in will. It's uh, I I don't get why it's such a hard concept uh, to reconcile. This isn't the Kyle, is it? Yeah, it is. Dude. Yeah, with the court of Desmond controversy, I, I actually wanted I actually like to bring this up because it illustrates um, the difference between valid differences in apostolic tradition. Because there there are valid differences in apostolic tradition, like some people say the say the mass differently you have uh even even back then you had differences in how to say the mass you had differences in various different liturgical practices blah blah, blah. you have differences in the date of easter um these are fine differences to have and in the first stage of the controversy um this was recognized uh, although the the pope was a little bit overzealous at first uh, to, to understate it this these differences um, we're fine. Uh, differences in dating of Easter. And then in the second part of the controversy, so th at, at this point, it's it's merely on the level of apostolic tradition, simply apostolic tradition. And then at the second part of the controversy, 
what you have is you have the church condemning the court of decimates. Why does the church go from not condemning the court of decimates to condemning the court of decimates? Well, the reason there's the switch is the supporters of the court of decimates went from simply following a an apostolic tradition of the dating of Easter, which is fine. It's fine to date Easter differently, to supporting their position on the basis of the old law. Now, what's wrong with supporting your opinion on the basis of the old law? You're a Judaizer. So they went from a fine practice to justifying their practice with a heretical um, underpinnings, which is why they were then condemned and then they were utterly obliterated a second time at the Council of Nicaea. So that that is uh, that, that sort of, I, I think, actually illustrates the difference between simply apostolic tradition and then uh, divino apostolic tradition, even within the same practice, which I actually think this this uh, this same sort of model uh, when we talk about the history of the veneration of icons in the early church could be um, applied. OK, so. Do you think uh, Trent intentionally didn't address the Eastern Orthodox canon, canon of Scripture? Or do you think Trent closed the discussion of what we hold in the Western Church as the final canon? I don't really know. I used to I used to think that they didn't completely close it. And then now I just, I'm just kind of agnostic on the issue. CC wrote. You are a biblical Unitarian. Block. There's no such thing as a biblical Unitarian. Uh, somebody asked about Euthyphro's dilemma. I don't feel like asking about that. Oh, man. Oh, man. DBH. I'm a, I'm a anti-DBH guy. Um, Father Thomas Joseph White's pretty good. I like his stuff. Unironically, I like his stuff. He's like my... I don't like many modern theologians, but... I think like once you get past like nineteen like fifty, the two theologians that I do read. Well, I guess I also kind of read Matthew Minard. Well, three Matthew Minard, um, Father Thomas Joseph White, and then Cornelio Fabro. Fabro. Fabro is great. Um, he, he says some cringe things about the history of, um, the Thomistic history. He says some very cringe things, but. Um, his like actual what he declares propositionally is pretty cool. Huh, thoughts on Father Fabro? <laughs> um, okay, I guess I can go to this into a, a little bit more detail. So basically, uh, his whole thing is that he he kind of holds uh, the the sort of revisionist view of the Thomistic commentators that. St. Thomas came up with a certain view of uh, essay, so uh, being, we call it being, um, or existence, that they, that they held this, this certain view uh, 
that he held a certain view that was completely right and amazing. And then over time, the Thomists basically completely lost it and turned it into some like bastardized uh, version of um, of what St. Thomas meant. Because if you look kind of like foundations of, of Thomistic metaphysics, you have matter form, which is hylomorphism, and you look form and above form, you have the um, you have essay and uh, existence. I mean, essay and essence, essay at essentia. You have essay, and you have essence. Up there, they form form, which goes with matter, and then boom. You have you have a you have a thing down here. But um the the problem is that a lot of times people haven't recognized that there is this act potency relationship between essay and essence. They're really distinct. Um I'll just I'll, for essay I'll just say existence from now because that's how most people there's a, a real distinction between the existence and, and the essence. And people have recognized this as an act potency uh, relationship. But, but for Bro, it was very clear that um, existence is the most actual of things. Uh, it's the most actual of things. It's, uh, it's said uh, by St. Thomas, one place to be the actus ascendi, the act of essence, just as form is the act of matter. So this, uh, this view, um, this way of articulating it at least, makes a lot more sense out of why St. Thomas is declaring that God is ipsum esse per se subsistence. That God is um, himself, uh, himself essay. He, he is existence. His essence and existence are identical, where everything else's essence and existence are, um, are distinct, which leads to God being purely actual. So, um, yeah, that is that that's sort of like Fabro's whole thing, which I really despise the way in which he talks about the commentators, but I really enjoy um the the uh his sort of explanatory power, I guess if you want to put it like that, uh when it comes to the notion of essay. Let me uh, so if you want if you want like a good intro uh for Fabro, um he, in the New Catholic Encyclopedia, the New Catholic Encyclopedia, not the Old Catholic Encyclopedia, he has um, this article, New Catholic Encyclopedia, on existence, um, which eventually I just want to kind of like yeet that out, scan it, and um, post it. So... Yes. That is that is Fabro's whole deal. Okay, so thoughts on more analytic based Thomas such as Fades and Robert Coons. I have no idea because I don't really as I said, I don't really really read stuff past the fifties. So all I know is that from what I have interacted with analytic philosophy, it's super cringe and it makes me want to fall asleep. Proposal. Interview on my channel with a crash course on the proper nuances of Roman views on a range of issues versus the common inaccurate beliefs thereof from outside. That'd be fun. 
that would that'd be pretty fun i would i would enjoy that such as what i said about tradition yeah i mean so my my only fear uh is that you do have you do have guys who turn into nuanced monsters i'm, I'm sure you know who i'm talking about they turn out in, uh, into nuanced monsters where all they do is like try to resolve difficulties by uh, making what what is very poorly explained and seemingly arbitrary distinctions. So these nuanced monsters out there uh, kind of make it a bit cringe to actually go out and explain distinctives. So yeah. That that's that's my my own my my biggest fear in life is that I be called a nuanced monster. Dude, Astro, this is wrong, and you don't have the noose. Read Basil level letter uh, two thirty four, where he says essence and energy are really distinct. Otherwise, we'd be led to a modal collapse. Bro, he got me with the modal collapse. Astro's debunked me. Okay. Is the Bible the mark of the beast? No. I know I skipped uh skipped questions. Yeah, event I I've been wanting to actually do going back to this this one. I've been wanting to do a like video of some sort on baptism of desire. I just know that like all of the insane set A's will will like come at like the insane Feniites will be flooding my channel for weeks and will come on my live streams and like I don't these guys these guys are just nuts they will like they will do any I remember um uh as an example of how crazy they can be uh Ryan Grant the translator of St. Robert Bellarmine uh, his wife passed so everybody make sure at mass tomorrow uh, if you're listening to this, uh, definitely uh, keep the repose of her soul in your intentions. But uh, she had she had just passed, and uh, Ryan had posted something about it. And one of these Feniites just like comments like "Your wife's in hell," like "Save yourself by not being a part of uh, Bergoglio's church" and everything like that. And Ryan Grant actually shot back pretty good and was like, "Well, uh, you can you can tell me whether she's there when you get there." Ah, oh, Hassan just messaged me and said, bruh. This this man, he's a jokester. Okay, okay, somebody asked me about Catholic Answers. Uh, speaking of Catholic Answers, what in your estimation is their greatest problem and how could they do better? Um, so like, like I've said, I always, before I speak about Catholic Answers in a negative light, I always say that they've done a lot of positive stuff. But, um, so what's important is that apologetics in, in a lot of ways becomes your very first catechesis. This is actually, I was talking to somebody about William Lane Craig the other day, and I think they might have a little bit of the William Lane Craig problem. So William Lane Craig, uh, he's a Protestant apologist dude, and he's heretical on his, uh, on his doctrine of the Trinity and his doctrine of Christ. I'm not saying obviously Catholic answers is 
uh, in the same way in this boat. But why is he heretical when it comes to his Trinitarian theology and his doctrine of Christ? Well, the reason is he wants to make both of them as palatable as possible and as easy to accept as possible for those coming in. So he explains Christology in an Apollinarian way because it's very hard for moderns to think of um, a single person with two intellects. And he defines the Trinity as having uh, three intellects, tritheism, uh, because it's difficult otherwise to explain them. And I feel like sometimes uh, Catholic answers can do likewise. Is they're so concerned about making Catholicism as palatable as possible for Protestant converts that oftentimes um, they're less concerned about uh, properly uh, stating the faith in the clearest possible manner for people um, to understand what it's talking about. And they're more concerned about um making sure they don't put up a, a stumbling block to the person's conversion. Uh, so, yeah, I, I guess that's the that's the only way. Um, I, I think that's kind of the meta problem with a lot of people. You, and, uh, Yeah. But uh, before we continue, um, I have books. So I have recently released two books. First one, Summa Vasoda Summa. This is the first volume. There's going to be a few uh, coming out. This one's just on sacred doctrina and the existence of God. Um, link below. Uh, it is uh, basically a compilation of passages in Scotus's Ordinatio and uh, discussing similar topics as St. Thomas discusses in certain articles of the Summa. And then below it, I have added, this is of uh, my own work, I have added all of the different places throughout St. Thomas's works where he discusses similar questions. So if you want to know, uh, if you're if you're somebody who kind of wants to know about Scotism, Thomism, whether you're on either side between wherever it may be, this is kind of a good work to interact um, in an easier way with Scotus's uh, own words. Interact easier way with Scotus and um, to also uh, be able to hear Thomas's side of it in his own words uh, by following the um, the various cross references so definitely check that out the uh, link is below also i came out with the brief introduction of the development of doctrine according to the mind of saint thomas aquinas uh, that's another another good one um, that kind of uh, saves us from our uh what what can mean uh, the the sola numen uh, view of the development of doctrine that Newman kind of came up with the development of doctrine and then nobody else has ever said anything about it. And Newman has the best articulation, everything like that. that so it's kind of uh, healed by this work right here, where it goes into what St. Thomas Aquinas actually has to say about the development of doctrine. So, yeah, we've been speaking about positively about the development of doctrine for about a thousand years, at least. So court of decimate controversy three, Oh, yeah. And I, and I forgot also, if you go uh, links below, um, because I've been kind of telling people like, hey, uh, could you like stop reading apologetics books and start reading um, good intros to philosophy and theology to at, at least read that before you get into your old apologetics game and stuff? I've linked four books. Um, one of them is 
an introduction to theology, an introductory manual uh, to theology and it's, um, in accordance with the mind of the, the scholastic doctors. Um, all of these are by uh, Father Charles Copens, who was a late um, 19th century Jesuit, which back when Jesuits were good. And the second one is one on uh, moral theology. Uh, the two philosophy ones, one of them is just on logic, and then the other one is on the other um, loci of, of philosophy. It's called mental philosophy, which it's kind of kind of like weird terminology, but yeah, mental philosophy just means uh, ev everything from past logic uh, all the way up to right before ethics. So yeah, th those are just some books uh, if you wanted to get. Uh, helps me out, and uh, I think they're just good, intrinsically good books. Okay, but continuing. Court of Destiny, Controversy 3. Oh, no, no. That was, never mind. I thought you were going to bring back the Court of Destiny Controversy. Okay. Okay, there. that's where I was. Oh, the other Paul will defend me to the death against the accusation of a nuanced monster. You know, the uh, Hassan responded to me seven minutes ago and said, bruh. So maybe he'll be coming on like the last 15 minutes. Uh, recently, some, I'm assuming someone recommended Sheban for looking into Catholic mystics, but I'm not familiar with him. Do you have some opinion on him? Uh, I think I might, uh, I, I know the, the, guy who recommends Sheban the most out of anybody in this entire world. So it might've been him. Um, but yeah, Sheban, I, he's really good. Uh, he's really good. He has some, I mean, he's, so you have this sort of, okay. So you have kind of two ways of doing uh, scholastic theology. You have the, the school guys, which I, I'm a school guy. Uh, I OP tradition, like, all around when it comes to the manner in which uh, we interpret St. Thomas. And then you have the eclectics. So the eclectics uh, examples would be like Suarez. Uh, Molina is another example, actually. Uh, Bellarmine's an example. Um, St. Alphonsus Liguori is an example. I, sorry, I meant St. Robert Bellarmine. I didn't mean to not get his title there. Uh, St. Alphonsus Liguori is another example. Sheban's another example. Uh, somebody like Franzlin. Uh, really, the, the Collegio Romana guys uh, are all uh, a bit of eclectics. Basically, a lot of Jesuits and a lot of um, non-Dominican Franciscan guys. Uh, a lot of them are just eclectics. And what eclectics do is they kind of try to um, pick through the schools and get whatever they the, the positions they think are the best. So sometimes it can be helpful uh, to read eclectics uh, because they they can break us out of our uh, mold in order to consider our own doctrine in a different light than uh, we've been able to or to consider the, the teaching of other schools um, or maybe even to help uh, us refute uh, the teaching of other schools. Um, so it can be helpful in that way. Uh, so, yeah, Sheban is one of those um, eclectics who was very interested in Greek, uh, Greek patristic resourcement. So he's like, he's, he's very good uh, on a lot of, a lot of different things. Um, like a few points, uh, he's an eclectic. So obviously on a few points, I think he's wrong. Uh, one of those weird points is uh, his view of predestination is really weird. 
Um, but all around, like, yeah, Sheevan's Sheevan's good. He's very good. Um, and then all of you out there who just heard me explain what eclecticism is, please don't become eclectics. Please don't. Uh, none uh, to to be perfectly frank, none of us are like you. You out there, you are not smart enough. I right here, I am not smart enough. Really, none of us are smart enough to be eclectics anymore. The great age of the eclectics is done. Um, we are not smart enough to think through this whole system from the ground up. We are we are all pretty dumb. Uh, we're practically illiterate, as I say all the time. I am practically illiterate. You're practically illiterate. All of you out there, um, I'm an idiot. We're all idiots. We're all like extremely dumb. All of us, uh, especially me. Uh, we, we like you read just how smart these guys were and read like their educational system. They were studying in like elementary school, like Aristotle's categories. Can you it's just like, come on, guys. They, they, they were, they were like, they were like entering into their, uh, their like, um, ecclesiastical degree system when they were like 12. It's like, we enter into it. Like we're lucky if we're in our early twenties. <sighs> They, they were they were a lot smarter than us. So no, just because I explained to you what an eclectic is doesn't mean you can be one. You're not one because you're not smart enough to be one. And nobody alive today is smart enough to be one. We just have to live in this sad state of the fact that we were not formed like our fathers were. But we can form our children uh, like our, our forefathers were. So they can be um, good, smart uh, eclectics if they want to. I hope none of my kids end up being eclectics, but if they do... I will I will be proud because that means uh, that they were smart enough to do that. But yeah, none of us are smart enough. I don't think you're smart enough. Oh no. Filioque wrong. I've been debunked. Uh when it comes to predestination, why did Augustine say that there is an asymmetry in order of salvation? And some say there is a paradox. Uh I I don't know what exactly what you're in reference to. Um, where should I start if I want to learn more about the Catholic faith intellectually? There are so many resources. I don't know where to start. Well, the four books I, uh, I put in the description, um, they're all easy to read. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not like any of them are like super difficult. They're not super long. Uh, the four books I recommended that'll get you through, um, basic systematics, basic moral, um, and then basic philosophy. So. Catholic Answers came out in the different era of Jack Chick and televangelists. That is true. Recommending books, yeah. Okay, so do your patrons get PDF copies of all your edited works? I, bro, I, I, I need to take that down because I have like a lot of them listed, but then I just like lost a few of the PDFs. So I have just no idea where the PDFs are. I'm hoping if, if somebody out there can help me pirate my own works, please, so I can post them. But yeah, I if I if I were able to find them, uh, there's like a post from like a year ago with a lot of them on there. Um, but yeah, theoretically, yes. Although practically, um, a few of them are missing. I wish I could just get like a discount code just for patrons. So I can just be like, just put it on your Kindles or something. 
Okay, so this question is good. Can the Son rightly be identified as God's wisdom and the Holy Spirit as God's power, activity, and life? Okay, so uh, yes, yes. Also, no. So when, when it comes to uh, naming the Trinity with essential names, these, these are all essential names. Uh, wisdom, God is uh, essentially wise. Power, God is essentially powerful. Uh, active, God is essentially active. Life, God is essentially living. Essentially, yes. With appropriated names, what we are doing, St. Thomas says we do two different things. One, we clear up possible defects. So the sun is called uh, wisdom for one reason, because sons are usually young and lack wisdom. So we're giving them a name that is eminent, uh, that is kind of the opposite of what you would expect uh, from, from sons which is why we call the, the son wisdom. It's also why we call the father powerful, um, because usually when it comes to uh, old men, uh, fathers, they're usually not seen as strong. Uh, so we uh, attribute omnipotence to the father in a, in a, a special way. So uh, the other way is we give these appropriated names um, in an actu actually in a formal manner. Uh, because of the what, what's called the principium quo, the principium quo. So the principium quo is the principle by which. So we all know the uh, the son uh, is begotten from the father, and the spirit proceeds from the father and the in the son. So these these are uh, these are listing the principium quo, the principle which. So uh, in the same way, I produce my son. My son proceeds from me. I am the principium quote. I'm the principle which produces my son. Now, when it comes to the principium quo, that is the principle by which. So what is the, uh, the form by which I communicate um, human nature to my son? Well, the effect is assimilated to the form of the cause. So I don't communicate my uh, human nature to my son by my paternity, by the fact that I am a father, because then I would be producing another father. No, paternity is the, uh, the relation which is constituted, um, at least for me and my son. Uh, this is still just talking about me and my son, uh, which is constituted because I gave the human nature. So rather, I, uh, I communicate by the form, uh, I communicate the form by the form inherent in me. So I communicate human nature by human nature. So when we uh, when we look at God, the principle. Uh, let's look. Let's just look at the begetting of the Son. So the Father begets the Son. So the Father is the principium quote. Now, what is that by which the Father? The the we can think of the power by which the Father begets the Son. Well. It can't be something personal, because if it's something personal, then we have just utterly divided the Godhead. Um, we, we have we have super added um, some sort of essential principle to the Father or accidental principle to the Father, which the fa which the Son does not possess, which is um, impossible to hold. Rather, it has to be something essential. So, uh, what's said to be the remote. Uh, principium quo 
is the divine essence. The Father um, communicates the divine essence by the divine essence. So that's the Principium Quo. Now, more particularly, we can look at the faculties of intellection and will. So the Father begets the Son by way of intellection, by way of intellection. So um, since the Father begets the Son by way of intellection, there's this sort of infinite uh, and eternal effulsion of the infinite fecundity of the faculty of the intellect, which communicates the entire numerically singular uh, divine essence to the Son. Because of uh, this communication um, by way of intellection, we can attribute certain intellectual terms to the sun. Use the sun like word. That's what we call the sun word, or we call the sun wisdom. Uh, we can call sun wisdom in a formal manner in this way, or we could call it uh, in an appropriated manner in the other way. There's actually, two, when we call the sun wisdom, we're actually, we can actually be calling him wisdom in two different ways. On two different grounds, which is interesting. So I hope that I hope that clears things up uh, when it comes to that. Oh no! Oh no! I cringed when Matt Fred compared Jimmy Akin to Thomas Aquinas one time. I mean, sorry, Matt, <laughs> but come on, man! Come on, man! Come on, Matt! That that just that just like hurt me at a new level. I I, I think I'm just gonna I'm just gonna give up the grind after this. I'm just gonna like delete everything I have, ever, just because I heard this. This is terrible. I don't I don't even know what I'm gonna do with myself after this. Like how how can I live in a world where I know that somebody said that? That's terrible. Like come on. I'm, I'm going to be having to live my day-to-day -day life knowing that this happened. Come on, man. You didn't have to tell me that. I will be thinking about this for the rest of the day now. For the rest of my life. About how Jimmy Aiken got compared to St. Thomas Aquinas. If you're listening, Jimmy, I love you and all, but I'm sure even you would think that this is ridiculous. That's crazy. That's utterly insane. Man, I think I think I'm just gonna have to end the stream here, guys. I, I can't. I can't. I can't keep going after hearing about this. No, I'm gonna have to end the stream. Okay. God bless.